Welcome everyone to the Scribe's Journey podcast where stories begin. I am Travis, the Calm Scribe. I'm LJ Stanton, the Pedantic Scribe. And I am TR Albi, the Oddball Scribe. And tonight we are talking about tropes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're going to be using our book of the month that we recommended last month, which this episode will have some major spoilers. But don't let that deter you. Stick around. You're in for a great conversation about tropes. I know we've all read it. What did everyone think of I Am Legend? I mean, I'm going to punt that back at you two, since I this is now, I think, the second time that I have read this book. And I, I loved it both times. I think it, it was definitely a good story. Uh, you know, we kind of talked about it offline and how like my wife was, we were listening together. I was listening to audio and she was kind of offended by some of the, the misogynistic material. But I do think that if she listened to it all the way through, because I, I just couldn't have find a time to listen to her with her the entire time. I mean, I'll admit, I literally just finished a book an hour before we started this. So, but like he had an evolution, you know, it wasn't hundred percent perfect, but he was less sexist by a little bit by an at inch. the end of the book, by an <laughs> inch, but it, but it, you could see that you could see how, how he took the character. And I like that. And, and the ending was definitely quite surprising. So, And that's the thing is that any good story has the main characters going through some kind of character arc where they're different from the beginning than they are. And I have to say, I love the story. I thought it was great. It was a product of its time. I thought it was a fantastic yeah. story. It's really well written. I did find, though, that the character arc was believable for someone in that situation. And it's not often you have, a, in reality, a character that's going to go through a complete 180 when they do their change through their character arc. So to have one that stutters and stumbles through the path and then is changed at the end, but they're not a mirror image of what they were in the beginning is, I think, a great way of doing it. The thing I really loved about the book, besides the ending, is the fact that we are talking about tropes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. LJ recommended this story as when we're looking for a book of the month for this topic. And I have to say it is fantastic. It involves tropes, it destroys tropes, and it turns some of the tropes on their head, which is I absolutely love. As I said beginning, uh, before we started the podcast, I was mentioning the fact that the idea of a post-apocalyptic story with a pregnant woman drives me nuts. Someone who's yes. pregnant or they have to get their medicine. There's always this little, like, that's a stressful time, obviously, in a post-apocalyptic world. But to have it in every single story is, to me, very problematic. I'm not a big fan of it. And the fact that there are, in this story, as we're going to come across, some of these tropes that do come up or some of these things that happen and you start asking questions and then they resolve them for you, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Spoiler alert, though, uh, he was not pregnant. <laughs> I, I, that, yeah. uh, now just ruined the whole story i there. know i know i killed it i killed it all i killed killed it all so but no i agree there are definitely some things we and do you want to just jump right straight into it or i think so but, yeah let's okay. so let's start off i think uh, we can jump into it also we can discuss like what what is a trope it, you said it was the time uh, sign of the times right i mean it was it talks about the time frame in the 1970s but it was written in 1950s i was looking for all those 70s type stuff and i realized wait 70s haven't even happened yet so he's just he's just making this stuff up out of the blue so he was using records and i was so really waiting for the eight track and it wasn't wasn't around no no i'm wrong it's always it's fun to be able to look back at a story written in the past about the future when you're past that date and look back and see what they got right what they got wrong all that fun stuff but they missed the whole point about the hippies he had no clue 
That hippies were the vampires. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> all, the, all the undead hippies out outside yeah. his door. And That's he's what it was. Take care of them. Uh, but yeah, so a trope is a common reoccurring theme that you see in different stories and movies and television shows. Uh, there are things like we just discussed, the pregnant woman in the post-apocalyptic world, the person that needs their medicine in the natural disaster movie or in a post-apocalyptic world as well. Anyone else want to jump in with some of their favorite or most detested tropes? Well, I did do a question to people on my Instagram and the favorite trope that came up time and time again was the found family trope. And that's either the family that you create, that you find and you bond together, or the, I'm guessing they also are including this in there, of the, you had a long lost parent, uncle, etc. that you get to find. And then I think the least favorite that was coming up often was the angsty protagonist the kylo ren's the i'm just so misunderstood type the main character in here was quite pissed off all the time <laughs> so he, he definitely falls into that line of angsty angry yes. guy who who can't control control his loins yes. i mean that's yeah the, i found there were a few things there was matheson definitely had a few favorite words like stultify i think yes. the word stultify shows up in the book probably about 37 times wow really <laughs> well, maybe is, not that much but it, it's didn't in the, count but I'm it's, there's an excessive amount of use of that word and yeah definitely the loins that's another trope which i find is this the concept of men not being able to control themselves when they see a woman naked half naked or otherwise there's just well, the brain goes out the window and everything falls apart because there's the potential it's... possibly maybe chance of seeing someone naked uh but it was in the 1950s right i mean at that point in time they were worried about seeing their knees and that and that's the thing like this is but also and we joked about it previously just go and handle yourself it's apocalypse you're not gonna find anybody you got some vampire ladies out in front of your door trying to tempt you what are you gonna do run out there and do that and that's just it is that it's one of these things that was a very powerful trope that was often used in older sci-fi and fantasy there's the very stereotypical male hero who is very buff and masculine and all of those kind of toxic traits the the traits that are bad if not tempered and it, this really goes into some of those points about his drinking to excess his smoking to excess yeah. his inability to control himself when it comes to sexual temptation and those kinds of things that there is an interesting amount of growth that yeah. happens with him that is really exciting to have kind of a little bit of commentary on it from Matheson but it doesn't go far enough for a modern audience, I don't think. So it is a book that needs to be read or listened to with that kind of grain of salt of that little reminder of the this is a work of fiction in the 50s that has inspired so many other impressive works that maybe build on it or do it better. And that brought up a question to me is like, there are some of the more deeper tropes I want to get into the ones that they break, like the garlic and the mirrors and all the other stuff. But yes, Ted has opinions about that garlic. Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, I'll, I'll just wait. Go ahead. But one thing, I, <laughs> one thing I was wondering about is how many glasses did they go through in the 1950s? Every time he got pissed off, he would throw a glass across the room. And if it didn't break, he would stomp on it. But yeah, well, so there was think about it, definitely he, the girl. He could always 
just loot these glasses from other people's houses. I'm sure the the vampires didn't go through and like shatter all the cups. Maybe he had a very interesting collection of glasses. Challenge accepted. If I ever become a vampire, the first thing I'm doing is breaking every glass I come across. Good, good to house. know. Good to know. And the vampire apocalypse <laughs> avoid the area of Canada that that you are because there will be no drinking glasses anywhere. No. But oh, that's everybody the... thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of the cigarettes, that was the thing. Like, so when I was talking about the concept of these tropes that come up or these little bumps that can throw you out of a story. And in the beginning of this, you see that he's constantly smoking cigarettes, like cigarette after cigarette and throughout a lot. And at one point I was sitting there and now we have to bear in mind, this is a vampire story. So we can go out during the day. He's in danger at night. And so we can go hunt in relative safely for supplies and stuff throughout the day. But I was wondering, like, you're going to run out of cigarettes. How is this person smoking so many cigarettes? And then the story actually actually mentions the fact that he's got he's afraid of running out of cigarettes but he has got a closet full of thousands of cartons of cigarettes that he's gathered so yeah it's little things like that that they've done as well and uh, repairing the station wagon or keeping the car up and running instead of just being years into a vampire apocalypse and the car is magically running they actually detail how is he keeping the car running what is he doing what is he getting how is he gathering supplies so these little things that i find Nowadays, somehow we've lost that ability to use these tropes in an intelligent way. I'm going to cut in right before Ted, because one of the things that I think really helps that aspect of the, you know, he has the room full of cigarette cartons, he has the car that he can still find gasoline for, is that Matheson also looks at his timeline and keeps it reasonably short for most things that, you know, trying to survive without going insane in this kind of a situation is hard. So keeping it in a short timeline, instead of saying, you know, he said it was about five months, I think, when we start the book instead of it being years and years and years into it and you're wondering well how come there's a gas station that still has gas it's the okay it's been five months okay i can see that he'd be able to siphon gasoline from places or you know find these other supplies but then there's the garlic all right, so I'll just, yeah, just jump into it then. The fact that he has a giant harvest of garlic within five months, that's impossible to do. It takes literally, I don't know, seven months to grow a really good staple thing of garlic. And we did it this past summer. I mean, like you're you're not going to get like several harvests there. I'm not criticizing him for his inaccurate farmer's details, right? <laughs> but if you're talking about vampires, you're going to use some of those tropes, right? What was another vampire work before this book? Dracula. And it's actually referenced in this book. Speaking of Dracula, speaking of vampires and garlic and all things spooky and scary, we're going to pause now for the next book of the month. And this one is absolutely terrifying because our next topic that we'll be talking about next podcast is plotting versus pantsing. And our new book of the month is Ted. In his plot and structure, it's actually uh, written by James Scott Bell. If you're looking for it, it is one of the Writer's Digest books that handles some of the technical aspects of plotting and structuring your book. So while we recommend reading the entire book, as we always do, pay more attention to the concept of the plots that they have and outlining within the book, because that is what we're going to be focusing on, is plotting versus pantsing in the next one, and not so much about structure. 
but getting back into it, that is one of you know, with the garlic showcasing a very good reason why you do your research and how we are very lucky nowadays to be able to do things like just shoot off on Google a how many months does it take to grow garlic? Because yeah. um, that should not be a mistake that you as a modern writer make. It is something that's fairly simple, but it is really neat to see how Matheson takes these tropes about vampires and vampirism, and he is absolutely, I probably am going to get corrected on this, but I'm reasonably certain that he is the first one to really dissect those tropes and try to figure out how would we make a vampire actually work? So you start getting the breakdown of those things that you find that just go with vampires of they can't see in the, themselves in the mirror. They're, you know, they don't do garlic. Uh, they can't go out in the sun. They change into bats. And he comes up with some really neat ways to discuss what if this would be something that we can explain and what are things that are just silly. Well, they Which, even have like certain things in there where people who have turned into vampires think they have certain abilities or you're even affected by certain things. Like, for instance, the cross. Yes. It only affected Christians, which was kind of hilarious, right? But then when, when he held up the Torah to someone who was Jewish, it affected them. The cross didn't work on them, but the Torah worked on, on the, the vampire who was Jewish. And that was, that was kind of interesting and creative. I loved how he explained that too, where it was just the idea that when science and all else was failing, people were turning back to faith and then yep. before their god they felt like they had been betrayed or turned away from and when they turned into these monsters then that's why the cross hurt them that's why their religious things hurt them and it was the same thing that i really like the idea of the mirrors because early in the book you learn that mirrors don't work mirrors keep the vampires away but you can see a vampire in a mirror but then he explains it through psychology with the concept of hysterical blindness where something so traumatic happens to you that you become blind to a certain item or a certain thing so they because of the bram stoker belief of vampires not being visible in mirrors these vampires would be hurt or pained by the fact that they couldn't see themselves in mirrors whereas everyone else could it was merely hysterical blindness brought upon by psychology so or the he, guy that thought he was a bat yes yeah. that was a, that was a brilliant <laughs> scene i love the bat scene it's a great scene since this this vampire climbs up a light post and leaps off flapping his his arms doing these but i'm a bat Nope. But he doesn't turn into a bat. He just nope. like belly flops on a car or something like that, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. This is one of the big reasons why I recommended this book, because it's the... You have set vampire tropes, and he goes and discards some of them and uses some of them, which is something that is so important, I feel like, in your own writing, is to know what tropes are surrounding the types of characters that you're building or monsters that you're using or settings even that you're using and figuring out what things are valuable to my story that need to be kept as part of, you know, the expectations that readers are going to have for this and what things can I toss away or hang a lantern on or, you know, subvert in some way. Yeah, and or use in the sense of yes. the, with this, where he used science to explain things away. So to, without getting into full details with it, in essence, vampirism was being caused by a bacteria that was keeping people alive on their skin. And that's why it was and in their bodies. And that's why the sunlight was hurting them because it would kill the bacteria. And so they would need blood to feed the bacteria. So once the bacteria had fed off of all the blood in the body, then the body would be driven out. So there were living vampires and there were dead vampires, like re, uh, unliving vampires or the living 
Living Dead. And the thing I found interesting about this was he used his research, and this shows the importance of doing research, because he used his research into bacteria and all and vampires and all these things and put it together because he has this aspect where he was being interviewed by the female vampire. And she said, well, why don't bullets work on them? And he said, well, the bacteria acts like a glue. So when you shoot them, the bacteria basically only allows like shooting into tar. The bacteria only allows the bullet to go a couple of inches into the body. And then it acts as a glue to heal up the wound really quickly to save the blood and to block anything. So you could riddle a vampire with bullets and it's not going to do anything. It's just going to keep his use together. of His use of stakes were, was really interesting. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like it, it allowed, the, I guess it was the air, right? I think to get yeah, it, yeah, it basically was the, it broke the seal. Yeah. Um, and it prevented that glue from happening and that air exposure ended up killing the bacteria, which then is yep. what allowed the vampires to die when he was staking them, which that was a big deal of one of the things he would do that is not really mentioned a lot in the book, but is the most important aspect of the book almost because he would go and kill vampires during the day. He finished, you know, fixing up the car and making sure that his house was still, you know, vampire proof. He would go hunting and he would kill vampires and he figured out the best ways to kill vampires and he used his research to help with that. He would start with a stake in the heart and that wouldn't always work. It wasn't always the best. So we stab here and then in the chest, you know, or in the gut and it still would kill him, which, you know, the mythology behind is that you have to stake the heart, you know, but it was interesting how he used that and tested it out too, as he was going. And that brings up another great point with this is that, that we discussed offline as well, is the concept that again, going back to tropes that are overdone and overused, he isn't a hero in this or an anti-hero in this that knows everything. He knows how to kill the vampires. He knows how to research things. And they actually show that going through. Like you were just saying, Ted, with the trial and error of where do you hit with the stake? And there are some other examples as well, weren't there? Yeah, because you have the microscope. You know, this guy is not a scientist. He doesn't know what he does not know when it comes to research. He's, unlike in the movie, this Robert Neville is not a viral pandemic scientist. He doesn't do these things for a living. In fact, he's kind of anti this stuff because he has daddy issues. So when he decides that he wants to know the reasons behind why the vampire are the way they are he goes to the library he starts to learn things and he goes okay i want to learn whether or not this is bacteria what the deal is goes and gets a microscope and he has no idea how to use it it's not a good microscope and he breaks it out of anger and frustration and then he goes out and finally goes and does some research about what kind of microscopes you actually need to use to be able to see bacteria in blood and that growth is really cool to get to watch he did find the microscopes very easily though i mean in the 1950s i'm trying to figure out like where would you find a powerful microscope but again, it's fiction, right? Science fiction, you know, they, to move along the story. Sure, he has to figure it out because if he's going to figure out it's bacteria, he has to be able to get it. It's not like there's a microscope <laughs> store or down the street that has a wide variety of microscopes. That's it's- my headcanon now for this, though, is that there is a microscope stored down the road with like the clean windows and everything nope. <laughs> that has just tables of microscopes now. <laughs> Try it out. Yeah. yeah. Check, see what you can see. <laughs> Skin cells, bacteria. 
Bring your vampires. <laughs> Check their blood. But they do. But I think because he also he went somewhere because he had to get the book that taught him about bacteria. And isn't that the same place that he found the microscope? Was in like some kind of laboratory or school or university or something? He I thought goes it was to a library. library. Yeah, a library. Yeah. My, right. I don't know if my I mean, library has that high level uh, microscope inside. Well, of in the 1950s, that's where you find all the information. Everything you, you want, whether it's true or not, is online. You can research it for the most part. But I mean, it's always nice having a physical copy of the book in your yeah. hand if you're going to go research something. So yeah. who... I'll let one of you two take a crack at the ultimate trope at the end. This is, like I said, I found this is one of the most poignant last sentences of a book. I absolutely love the last sentence in this book. But yeah, LJ, do you want to bring us through to the final twist? would love to, especially because I I know that many people have seen the movie and the movie ends with a very similar note talking about how Robert Neville sacrificed his life to get the vaccine or whatever it was to the survivors and that he is legend because of that, which that's so far from the truth. In the book, I'm going to bring back the fact that he was going and killing vampires all the time. And then he sees this woman out during the daytime and he meets her and he talks to her and she runs away from him and leaves him this wonderful note informing him that she did not lie to him when she said that her husband and whatnot had been murdered, but that her husband was murdered by him and that this world that he thought he lived in was a very different world than the world he does live in because of the fact that there are dead vampires and there are living vampires and that he needed to run because the living vampires were going to come and they were going to take him. So he tries and he doesn't and he's captured and he comes to the realization before he's executed that he is legend. He is myth. He is the boogeyman that terrifies the entirety of vampire society and that he is not a good person. It is interesting though that they've somewhat given up on their entire humanity, right? They're living vampires. They're they're trying to establish a new society. They have these hitman vampires who rush in in black vans with military weapons to bring him back, like you said, to stand trial for being that killer that has been hunting them. I was very taken back by the fact that not even just the fact that he was the actual villain in the eyes of the, these vampires, but within that such a short period of time, they gave up on so many of the things they just said, well, now we are now vampiric people. Let's go and create a nation in five years. It was, it was a little bit quick for me. I was like, huh, all right. How do you get organized that fast to decide that now we're a completely different species? Wouldn't there be some like battling or something like that? I mean, knowing humanity itself. My guess is that those are the things that are happening like off page. You know, that's right. the reasons why Robert Neville didn't know that he was killing arguably people because in his little corner of the world at night, all he could see were just the vampires that were dead trying to get him. And then of course, during the day, the vampires really don't come out during the day. You know, it's very dangerous for them to come out during the day. They needed, I think she had like sunscreen and like tanner, some stuff all over her so that she could be out. So it's the, all he can see of their culture and their world is just this tiny little 
you know, what yeah. was out his peephole. And so that's the only world we get to see. So we don't know about everything else that was going on, which I think would be an interesting book. And I wish he had written it, but also I, kind of glad he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. Cause that's the thing that she also had a pill because as we said, the bacteria needed blood. So the pill that she left him because she was a vampire, but also kind of helping him was half blood and half drug. The blood kept the bacteria fed and the drug stopped the bacteria from multiplying. So they found, so it was the vampires that found a way to control their own vampirism and this bacteria that was attacking them. So they're doing that off page as well, but they're also were having these inner battles and building themselves up. But I liked the fact that they used Ted's point as a juxtaposition, clearly stated, mm -hmm. because as he's watching this military attack come in and these vampires dressed in black, driving black vans, going out and killing all the, because the living vampires want all the dead vampires killed permanently. So they well, come in giving them a bad name, right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's like... <laughs> Well, that's it. So he comes in and he kill they they kill everyone, and he's sitting there going like, "Wow!" He, like, did you like the look on their faces? They were enjoying it. There was joy. They were loving. It. They were slaughtering. It was this mass murder that was happening, and they enjoyed it. He's like, "You all are monsters. What's wrong with you?" Because when he wakes up in the grasp of the vampires these female vampire that he finds earlier and that is kind of helped along to this point is talking to him you know when he said why are you so violent and why is this such a terrible society and she said we're we're revolutionaries all revolutions start with a lot of bloodshed and wars and violence and he said yeah but they're the look on their face they were enjoying it there was this bloodlust that they had and she said well did you ever see your face when you're going and killing all the vampires did you see your face when you're chasing me across the field yeah that was yeah. a good point and that's when he realized he was like oh, I'm no better than the vampires were. And the fact he does come to that realization, not necessarily on his own, but the fact that he comes to that realization at all is just excellent. I love that last little bit of character growth before he dies. Yeah, he does have that. And that's one thing I think they kind of leave to a little bit, but he doesn't get executed. He kills, he takes his Yeah, she gives him a suicide pill yeah. so that she she's preventing him from having to suffer because I think it's very either outright stated or heavily implied that it's the, you have killed so many of us that people don't just want justice, they want revenge. They want vengeance. They want more from this. And that they'd be given it because that is healing, that is bonding and whatnot in these very basic revolutionary style societies. So the female vampire does go ahead and give him a suicide pill so that he doesn't have to suffer, which is very magnanimous of her, I feel, given that everything that he had done. And that actually brings up a point that I wanted to. There's a section I wanted to read out of the book because they actually do, in the beginning, tell you the ending of the story. Yeah. Oh, which I did not notice that. Yeah, which absolutely blew me away. And there's, there's so many things, like so many descriptions in the story that absolutely caught my attention. The last podcast, I talked about moments where you stop and kind of put the book down and you're like, wow, that was so well written. And there were points in this that did that. But where the, the talk of the vampires studying their own society and the fact that Neville is the villain in all of this for the vampires. So he's talking about how at one time in the dark Middle Ages, the vampire's power was great. But are his needs any more shocking than the needs of other animals and men? Are his deeds more outrageous than the deeds of the parent who drained the spirit from his child? The vampire may foster quickened heartbeats and levitated hair, but is he more worse than the parent who gave to society a neurotic child who became a politician? Is he worse than the manufacturer who set up belated foundations with the money he made by handing bombs and guns to suicidal nationalists? Is he worse than the distiller who gave bastardized grain juice to stultify further the brains of those who, sober, were incapable of progressive thought? 
Is he worse then than the publisher who filled ubiquitous racks with lust and death wishes? Really now, search your soul, lovey. Is the vampire so bad? All he does is drink blood. Why then this unkind prejudice, this thoughtless bias? Why cannot the vampire live where he chooses? Why must he seek out hiding places where none can find him out? Why do you wish to him destroyed? Ah, uh, you see, you have turned this poor, guileless, innocent into a hunted animal. He has no means of support, no measure for proper education. He has not the voting franchise. No wonder he is compelled to seek out a predatory, nocturnal existence. It's fantastic. And then at the end, that's what they've done, is they've gone and they've built their own society. And he is the one, he is the lovey that is hunting them and trying to stop them. So on page 20, you see what happens in page 159. Yep. And that little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. You're never going to catch that reading through the first time. Unless you're really looking and digging for it and remember it basically when you get to the end of the like, wait a second, I saw that way back here. It stood out to me because that was one of those things where I actually went to my wife. I'm like, you have to hear this. Just yep. the description of the vampire and the perspective of our view on the vampire. And that's kind of that goes back to the same thing of evil is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yep. Those committing evil don't see it as evil oftentimes, right? They see it as a means to an end. So that is a great moment to do the make your villains interesting and don't fall into some of the really dumb villain tropes. Because <laughs> you can make them so much cooler, like having an entire story about basically a backstory to a villain. And it's excellent. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that also brings up some homework. Did you want to cover the homework, LJ? Sure. Uh, the homework for listeners and for, for viewers is to go and look at the tropes that you can find within a movie, a TV show, or a chapter of something you are, you know, reading, watching, etc. and see what you can pick out for tropes and see how often those tropes occur across media. So if you're reading a book right now, see if you can find where else those tropes are also in a movie that you're watching or anything like that. Then for those of you who are writers, go and write a chapter using the effective tropes for your genre. So either rewrite a chapter that you've already written or write a short story or just take this as a good writing exercise so that you can do a little bit more research and a little digging into different tropes. Do we have any closing comments? I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Scribe's Journey with the Three Scribes. Now that we're done, go sharpen your quill and get back to work.